You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. The Running Public is brought to you exclusively by VJ Shoes. My ratio of choice, Kirk's ratio of choice. If you're heading off trail, this is the shoe you want on your foot. Right now, discount code RUNNINGPUB40 will get you $40 off the VJ Shoe Zero. This is a 20 carbide tipped winter running and racing beast. Go to VJShoesUSA.com and use it today. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday. What's up, guys? Today, we are going back to basics. We are going to talk training terminology 101. Bracken and I have gotten some solid feedback from you guys, the running community. And one thing that we're realizing is we throw around these running jargon terms, and not everybody knows what they mean. And so today, we are going to dive into that further. How does that sound, Bracken? sounds like a much needed public service. I agree with that. I agree with that. So should we dive in? Let's do it. The single most commonly asked question I got, and I put a poll out on Instagram today, is about threshold and tempo runs. So I'm sure there's better places we could start, but I don't know if there's a more deserving place to start in the terms of jargon in our community than the commonly misused tempo and threshold runs. Yeah, well, I think so. We'll we'll go down and we'll sort of list these different terms or um, aspects of training and running, and we'll just go one at a time. Is that the plan, I assume? Yeah, let's knock it out. Let's use this as a reference guide for people. If they want to listen to other podcasts, listen to ours. This is, this is Terminology 101. Listen to this, get on the same page, and then everything will make sense. All right, so back to tempo. Tempo or threshold are really the same thing in my eyes. It's the same... Um, type of workout or you're going to achieve the the same result. From what I understand, tempo or threshold, if you're going to look at pacing is roughly, you know, 25 or 30 seconds slower pacing than what your 5k would currently be. That's sort of the starting point that I go off of. Um, I know you have other thoughts on that. No, I think that's, that is one of the commonly accepted definitions of tempo. I think Jack Daniels really made the tempo run popular. And he talked about 24, 25 to 30 seconds slower than 5k. And really what it comes out to is that your anaerobic threshold, your lactate threshold, your FTP, which is functional power, it's all the same thing. Just think about it as how much work could you get done gun to your head in an hour? It's that effort. One hour race effort. Doesn't matter if you're swimming, biking, running, spelunking. How hard could you do that for an hour? And that is threshold pace. Yeah. And so to clear a little more air on that, basically in that pace is sort of a pace or an effort in which our body can clear as much lactate as it's producing. So we call that like a a difficult and hard, but rate of work in which you're not tying up. So basically your body is working very hard, but not so hard that it can't create, uh, get rid of the lactate uh, byproduct of what that effort is causing. Correct. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You're right in the line. Anything over that and you've crossed the lactate threshold and now you are going to start tying up in a couple minutes. Yep. That's exactly right. So it's like a very high sustainable rate of work. Yep. For the slower crowd, you're talking 10K pace roughly. For the really fast crowd, you're talking half marathon pace. People that can run around an hour for a half marathon. And for everyone in between, it's like 15K pace, 10 mile race effort, but just think one hour. If I could race this for an hour, that's right around your threshold pace. Now you can get super scientific with this lactate threshold. You, you know, you're talking um, blood tests to see how much lactate is actually in your blood. For anaerobic threshold, it actually talks about oxygen uptake in your system. But to keep it super simple, one hour race pace, and you can break that up however you want it. You can do tempo intervals, you can do tempo runs, you can do all sorts of things. It's just all done at the same pace. Yep. Yeah. And I would say as far as, I don't know, 
creating a, a big engine uh, which can make you uh, able to race a myriad of race distances. I would say that tempo or threshold work should be a staple in your program. I think it it really creates your ability to do work over a long period of time. So that is a zone you want to work in often. Yep. And it's typically done in bouts of 30 to 40 minutes. It can be done straight for 30 to 40 minutes, or it can be broken up into intervals with very, very short recovery, like 60 seconds or less. But 30 to 40 minutes of work is a generally accepted good amount of time to spend working in the threshold intensity. But that's where you get into some of this miscommunication. You have people talking about 10 mile tempos or I did a two mile tempo to start my workout. And now you start talking about the, like the far ends of the spectrum of tempo. You know, people say sub threshold or over tempo or sub tempo. And really what people are talking about is they're doing a comfortably hard run. And now they start using the word tempo to mean faster than easy, slower than hard. Right. Yeah, that's fair. And and I think those words sometimes get thrown around or misused yeah. uh, a lot. Um, so let's give the listeners two examples of like a tempo or threshold run. I'm going to take the easy way out. And I'm going to say that I often do like a five to eight mile tempo run, which is a steady effort. And I would say it's roughly 30 seconds per mile slower than uh, my 5k race pace at the moment. And those efforts really build a lot of stay power for me. I know you've approached the tempo or threshold work a little differently recently. What would be a workout that you've done? Well, I've been doing a lot of cruise intervals and that is basically running an interval workout in your threshold pacing, you know, 15 K pace for me, which is a little under one hour race pace. And so it's a little faster than true threshold work, but I'm doing long interval, short recovery. But I think my favorite threshold workout other than the straight five to eight mile run is to do 10 to 15 minute blocks of work uphill on a treadmill with 30 second recovery. So four times 10 minute climbing up at 20 to 40% with 30 second recovery. And that's, that's still doing your 30 to 40 minutes of work. It's still doing it at the same heart rate or effort I would keep for one hour race, but now I'm doing it uphill. I like that. Can't, can't do enough hill running. No. And now Kirk, you talk, touched upon in your intro to this, this leads us really easy into the next misunderstood term, which is lactic acid. But you said it correctly. You said lactate. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, lactic acid, everyone likes to blame lactic acid. I'm sore. <laughs> My legs burned out because of lactic acid, but uh, lactic acid is not a byproduct of exercise. Right. Lactate is. Lactate yeah. is. Yes. So talk to me a little bit about lactate and then pass it over whenever you're done. Oh, well, I hope you have more to add than I do, because I would say as far as lactate goes, and I'm sure there's experts out there that know much more than I do, but like there's always a cost to burning fuel, let's just call it. And so I'm really going to simplify this, but let's say you're driving your car down the street and the byproduct is exhaust out the back. Well, there's a byproduct to um, energy consumption. And so that byproduct is lactate as far as I understand it. And when that builds up too much, our body can't keep up with flushing it out. And um, we eventually will tie up and our, our rate of performance will go down. Yeah, that's, that's a great that's a great explanation. When we are working aerobically, which means we're, bur we're burning fat for fuel and you, you have all the oxygen you could ever need to keep working at that pace, it's easy effort. Your byproducts of respiration, of breathing aerobically are carbon dioxide and water. You just breathe that out. When you start working anaerobically, you start having to burn sugar for energy. And that's the, that, that has extra byproducts in your muscles when you do that, which is lactate. And that has the presence of hydrogen ions. You can get super deep into that, but the point is your body produces it, but it can also feed off lactate, so to speak. There is a process in place for reabsorbing it, essentially using it to fuel yourself, but it's not as efficient as using just oxygen and fat. And so the process isn't as fast. And as soon as you can't keep up with the lactate production anymore, you can't sip fuel off it anymore. Now those hydrogen ions bog you down and you start to feel that terrible burn and you tie up. That's about as technical as I want to get. Yeah. It produces lactate. It's not the devil. It's a fuel source. But when you can no longer consume it fast enough, then you're over your threshold and you are on borrowed time. And it doesn't make you sore. Micro tears no, make you sore. Right, correct. Actual tears in your muscle fibers make you sore. Correct. And we do actually get micro tears 
if you look under like a microscope or on a, on a cellular level, like there's tear, there's actual tears in your muscles. That's what makes you sore, not lac lactic acid in quotes. Um, yeah, the, the old practice of putting your legs up against the wall to get the lactic acid out of your legs so that you're not sore tomorrow. There's merit to putting your legs up against the wall, but it's not doing what your old, you know, JV uh, or FIA gym teacher told you it was doing. Well, I mean, it's the same thing as like those Normatec, same thing as those Normatec boots. They're compression, they push blood out of your legs, and then the blood comes back in, and it's really the same concept. Yeah. Just cheaper. Yeah. So we touched upon it briefly, but I do want to clarify that there's this big question, well, what's the difference between anaerobic threshold and the lactate threshold? And... Is that like a difference? And the answer is yes and no. To us, to the everyday person, there's no difference. Your anaerobic threshold, your lactate threshold, your functional power, it's all your one hour pace. To a scientist, it's measured differently. One's measuring blood lactate, one's measuring oxygen consumption, but it all generally refers to the same thing, which is the effort or pace you can keep for an hour. Yeah, yeah, now they know. I think we should move to the next uh, item on my list anyways. Um, I did not put out an Instagram poll. These are just things that I thought we should dive into. And all I have written down is heart rate. Heart rate. <laughs> okay, so heart rate. So why does it matter? And when does it make sense to look at your heart rate when you are training or racing? Do you have any like real quick answers for that? My answer is that it either always matters, it sometimes matters, or it never matters. And it really comes down to what is your preferred way of measuring your effort? If you want to look at heart rate to measure your effort, you can do it incredibly accurately. And if you want to go totally by feel or by pace, it's a little bit less accurate, but it tells you how hard your body's truly working. Yeah, I think so. And and for me, so the really the two places that I use it most, and actually I'd say 90% of the time, I only check my heart rate on my recovery days. I think it's easy to run too hard on recovery days sometimes, but the heart rate never lies. So I check my heart rate monitor constantly on recovery days uh, more than anything. In fact, some of my hard interval work, I don't even care. Look, it's only data I, use, I look at after the fact to be like, oh, that's how high 400 meter repeats got my heart rate or, oh, that's because it, it's not as relevant in my opinion. So um, recovery days are the most important you know, in my biased opinion, to make sure you're not working too hard. And then also when we talk about our tempo or threshold runs, sometimes you want to work into a certain heart rate zone into there. So I will look at that at times as well. Um, how do you look at your heart rate? Almost exactly the same. All my recovery runs are limited by feel, but they have a hard heart rate cap on it. And then all of my interval or quality work that is slower than 10K pace, I keep track of heart rate the whole time. So basically, if I'm talking threshold or I'm talking recovery, it's ruled by heart rate. Everything else, I'm going off pace or perceived effort. And I will say long runs, a lot of time I track my heart rate because I like to do some threshold work during the long run. And I like to see what's all going on there. As far as heart rate goes, I know everybody's max heart rate is different, but just give people an idea. So on your recovery runs, where, what is your hard cap as far as heart rate? Like what sort of heart rate average? Let's say you're going up for a six to eight mile recovery run. Where do you like to see your average heart rate at the end of that run for a true recovery run for you? Well, I stay pretty low. I like, I, I really like the idea of polarized training. I'm working hard or I'm working very easy. How many beats per minute are we talking roughly? Uh, I, I set a hard cap of right around 135 on my easy days. On my, re on my recovery days, sometimes it's 129, 130. And that's your average, or when you see that, you will make sure to go no harder? I'll average right around 33, 34. Sometimes it'll spike to like 38, 39 on a hill, and then I'll I'll back off. But yeah, I'd like to keep it at all times under 135, 136. Okay. And so for me, as long as I see an average of under 140, I know that I'm within the wheelhouse for me. But I really, um, I know I did my recovery run right when I'm somewhere between 130 and 135 at the end of the run. And it, who cares about pace? You can go run any terrain you really want on a recovery day, as long as you're keeping that heart rate where it needs to be. So um, I think the two recovery efforts I did this week, I averaged 134 beats a minute and 135 on the other one. So we're pretty similar there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think that's a good general rule of thumb for listeners. Again, you're, it, this is based off a of max heart rate, so it's not a perfect translation, but I would say that 135-ish range, no higher than 140 average, on a recovery day and and you'll be better off. 
Yeah. Yeah. Now, a lot of people question, how do I find my max heart rate? That's a really easy question to Google. And I suggest doing it because the way I find my heart max heart rate is not the way a lot of people find theirs. I am an overachiever in races and some people are overachievers in workouts. I struggle to find a max in a workout, but I can hit it like clockwork in a race. So I can run a 5k and get my max heart rate. But if I do a heart rate test and they are, there are tons of heart rate tests online, I rarely get within five beats of my true max. Maybe I'm weak mentally. I'm not sure what it is, but uh, I, I would say look into it and test out a few. And really, I think a shortcut way to that is to throw your treadmill at 15 to 30% and just try to tempo and get it beyond where you're capable of after you've been on there working hard for like 10 or so minutes like work pretty tempo effort and then just crank up the speed like half a mile an hour, hang on for dear life. That's about as close as I've gotten. Yeah. <laughs> it's now miserable. the great thing is that we live in the world of technology and there are online heart rate calculators for every input that you can give. You can give your max heart rate and it'll tell you your, your estimated VO2 max heart rate, your threshold heart rate, your recovery, easy run heart rate zones. What I do though is because my max heart rate is tougher for me to hit. I know my threshold heart rate. I can input that and it'll give me my max heart rate. And so okay. I work from the other end of the spectrum because I'm very comfortable with my threshold heart rate. What's the highest heart rate you've recorded in the last two weeks? I want to hear the number. How many beats per minute did, have you seen hit at its peak? I, I, I would guess 179. At High Rocks at your race or did you no, know? No, I took my, my heart rate uh, monitor off before the start. And then I took my watch off after the first round. I just didn't want to know. I just wanted uh, to compete. That would have been some good data, man. It would have. That that would have been my absolute. I would have hit something big there because yeah, I was super in pain. But uh, one seventy nine in a workout. Okay. I did a threshold workout, and then I finished with one hard, hard set of intervals at the end. And during that, I spiked a little bit. Okay. But uh, that I think that leads us to VO two max. That's right yeah. in the realm of heart rate. We've talked thresholds. Um, now VO2 max. A lot of people question that term because we used that on an episode a few weeks ago. That basically just talks about oxygen consumption. Your maximum oxygen consumption that you can that you can hit um, during a test is considered your VO2 max. And to make it easy for people, it's right around six to nine minutes of racing effort. This is where you're going to hit your is where you're going to hit your peak numbers. Yeah. So most people would consider VO2 max your 3k pace if you're fast. I mean, sorry, if you're very fast, it can be closer to your 5k pace because some people can train to hold it for 9, 10, 11 minutes and now you're getting close to Olympic 5k times. But for most people, it's safe to say it's right around your 2 mile or your 3k pace is VO2 max pace. Yeah, and just to label it out, really it's the it's the rate of oxygen consumption like the ability your body has the at, at which rate it can consume oxygen because we have to be able to sustain that rate for a big effort like you just talked about and vo2 just stands for volume of oxygen like v volume o2 oxygen it's just very literal yeah there. and there's a formula the, for it you're the liters of oxygen your uptake dividing by your kilograms or whatever but yeah it just basically means how much oxygen can you process and I think most people, once they hit it, can actually sustain it trainable for like three to four minutes. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's a very painful feeling if you're working at VO2 max, yes, by the way. So it's nothing fancy. Think somewhere between 3K and 5K is VO2 max. Think somewhere between 10K and half marathon is threshold pace. And anything significantly slower is easy. And significantly faster is <laughs> true, true speed. You know what I think? My, my Garmin watch keeps telling me my VO2 max it predicts it, and I think it's a bunch of trash. Yep. It's not predicting properly. So don't – right now, my, my, my Garmin watch tells me that I'm detraining. It's unproductive, and my VO2 max has gone down by like four in the last three workouts because I've been doing like OCR intervals or it looks at your overall pace. It doesn't take elevation into account. I know a lot of you are running Garmin's or Suntos or something. Um, I would disregard the VO2 max that that piece of equipment gives you. You should have to go to a lab to actually get that accurately tested. Yeah. And, and I think that's a great piece of advice that if you really want true numbers, you have to be spending money to get it. It can't be a free tool. Like even though I'm super comfortable yeah. with my lactate threshold heart rate, if I really wanted to know, I would have to be doing a blood draw after intervals to find 
um, that my what my my blood lactate levels are. Yeah, well, that's good to hear because my Garmin's been hurting my feelings lately, Bracken. Oh, and you're just coming off getting sick, Kirk. You know, your heart rate's all over the place. Tell that I'm detraining. Um, and I would say, you know, VO2 max, your VO2 max potential is really the, the overall capability of your aerobic engine. And the thing is, is yes, having a high VO2 max is super, super important. Your ability to perform isn't solely based on your VO2 max. Things like running economy, all the other factors that that play in. You can have a world-class cross-country skier or rower, for example, that has a higher VO2 max than even like a world-class distance runner. But you put that cross-country skier on the track and the distance runner blows by them because of their run efficiency, mm-hmm. other things like that. So, so VO2 max necessarily, if you have a great VO2 max, good for you. That's fantastic. doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the best runner in the world, or it could mean you be the, you know, you could be great. It's just, it's another way or measure to, to, understand your aerobic capabilities. Yeah. And a lot of science has recently pointed to your lactate threshold, your anaerobic threshold being a more important indicator of performance than VO2 max, which is great because it's easier to work at. It's more sustainable and it's more trainable. Yeah. Um, anything else to add with that one? I think I'll piggyback off. You used a term, you used a running economy. Okay. Yeah. Let's go into it. So we might as well go right into that. That's a word that gets thrown around and I think everyone knows what it means, but no one, not no one, very few people want to define it. It's one of those, yeah, I, I know exactly what running economy means, but I couldn't give you a set definition. And uh, so it's really easy to just think about fuel economy in a car. Are we going to get into vertical oscillation with this as well? Well, someone asked about vertical oscillation. So I'm going to do my, I'll do my real world analogy and then you get techie on me. How's that sound? Sure. Okay. Fuel economy in a car. Two cars are both going 70 miles per hour. One of them's burning half the amount of gas to do it. There's running economy for you. Efficiency. Yeah. How efficiently, how much energy is it costing you to put out the the effort needed to maintain that level you're working at? So even if we had the same threshold level, let's say Kirk and I both have a 171 lactate threshold heart rate. At that pace, we're both running six flat pace, but... Kirk can keep it for 15 minutes longer than me. The 15 minute would be dramatic, but 10 minutes longer than me. I think that sounds about right. Probably. It would be because he has greater running economy. He can do the same work with less cost. Yeah. Running economy or run efficiency is, you know, really you look at your gait. So your stride, like, are you, are you overextending your stride and heel striking, thus making yourself less efficient? Are you having a lot of unnecessary arm motions or turning of your core and, and trunk? Are you, the way your hips are placed, how much vertical oscillation you are displaying, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, so yeah, run economy just means, yeah, exactly what you said. Run efficiency, how smoothly and how efficiently you run. It makes a big difference. Point being like, I've seen, you know, some people, when we go back to VO2 max, like they can have a very average VO2 max score, but you know, run like butter and they can be very, very quick runners. In fact, at the world level, um, you can have pretty big discrepancies in VO2 max in a lot of a lot of um, endurance sports, and yet athletes are performing roughly the same. And mm-hmm. that's a lot due to running economy. And it can be measured in a lab, and it can be felt in reality. And you can go back to your heart rate to see it. You know, try yeah. clenching your fists while running on the treadmill at seven minute pace, and then relax them and see what your heart rate does, and see what your breathing does. You know, little things affect it really, really noticeably. A couple beats up. Your, your, your breathing gets more rapid and that's real world ex- like cues of how to fix your, your running economy. 100%. Um, I said vertical oscillation. Mm-hmm. You'll see sometimes on your watch, it will give you like some random number. And I actually don't even know exactly what that number specifically means with your vertical oscillation. And you're like, what is, where your, what is, what is the reading on the watch typically say? Does it say vertical Yeah, vertical oscillation. And what it really only means is how much your torso rises up vertically during your stride. And they measure it in centimeters. Yep. So so it's how much up and down you are moving, not forward you are moving. And it's measuring that. And really, when you see like a higher vertical oscillation, that is just energy and efficiency lost. The more up and down and bounding you are going, typically the less efficient you are. If you ever watch really good, like, and it could be anything, 800, 1500, 5K runners, and you just watch their heads going, their heads are almost moving in a completely straight line without any up or down or bobbing. When I see somebody galloping down the street and running and they're just kind of up and down, up and down, 
I think that is a waste of energy right there. So I think less, typically less vertical oscillation means more efficiency. And that doesn't mean shuffling because bouncy no. runners are typically fast runners, but it's a bouncy visual. It's not necessarily that they're gaining all this height. If it was a math yeah. equation, the higher you go, the less distance you're going to travel with the same effort. Yeah. Yeah. You always judge up by looking at somebody's just like at their head as they're running. Mm -hmm. You like pretend they have no legs or no body and you just see what their head's doing. And if their head looks like it's just like floating through space at the same level, they're probably pretty efficient with what's going on below their head. Boom. Vertical oscillation, running economy. Nailed it, Kurt. Nailed it. Let's just touch on really quick. I don't think we need to spend much time on this, but the long run. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. Duh. It's a long run. There you go. That's the term. Right. But what, yeah. what, like, what does that really like mean? Like, how, how do you decide like how long your long run should be? What's the importance of it? What do you think? This is one that the scientific community does not yet agree on. There's yeah. not like a number that says if you cross 70 minutes, it's a long run. Even though a lot of people say 75 minutes, 90 minutes. Now it's a long run. Running experts like to talk about it as a percentage of your weekly volume. And it ranges. Some people say, yeah, you shouldn't go much more than 20% of your weekly volume for a long run. And other people are like, well, how would you train for an ultra with only like 30 miles a week? You have to do some long run. And so roughly 20 to 30% is a safe range of your weekly volume. So if you're running 100 miles per week, your long run can safely be 20 to 30 miles. If you're running 50, it's going to be 10 to 15 miles. And it's just a percentage of your week. That's a good jumping off point. So if you're going to be a 10 mile a week runner, you're just starting running, it's really easy to just to say, okay, I'm going to take 25 miles, I mean, 20, 25% of 10. And uh, that's what I'm gonna start with is my long run. And then you can safely build. Yeah, yeah, that's the uh, same numbers I was going to throw out there. So I think that's fair. And really, the importance of the long run is, I would say one word durability, as far as time on feet, like whether or not if I go out and run three hours, really easy, or I run three hours hard, which would be probably where I kept my long runs at peak, peak training. I like there's still a, like a residual of fatigue and the amount of time on feet and even little things like how your feet and shoes wear to how your hips hold up to all those things, just spending time on feet and, and exposing it to that sort of stressor over a long period of time can, can help create, let's say, stay power uh, in shorter races. So I think it's an important component. I agree. And you can get as techy as you want with this. You can talk about mitochondria production and damage mm -hmm. and, and, and a lot of different things. But the point is, the longer you run, the more resilient you become generally. And the, the, just the more practice you're getting doing it under a fatigue state. But there's like this, this flow of, it's almost like water coming down from a mountain. And as it flows, it just picks things up along the way. And the longer your water spends flowing on a long run, the better it's going to be able to handle your threshold work because you have this stain power and now you can keep your form better and you can keep your, your heart rate lower during your threshold work and you get better results there and you do better at that. Now your speed work starts getting better and they all kind of feed each other, but they're tied together by that long run. Yeah. So let's go right to the opposite of that then interval work. Yeah. A lot of people okay. question what interval work is and because there's this confusing term out there called reps. Is it yeah. interval work or is it rep work? And is that speed work? Are they both speed work? Is only one speed work? Oh my God, my mind is just spinning right now. I'll just say what the purpose of intervals are and then I'll let you sort of dive in a little bit more. Really the purpose of intervals, interval work, we'll just call them shorter or faster bouts in general. There's exceptions, but in general, shorter or faster bouts than to what your, what your typical steady run would be, okay? And those improve your aerobic and your anaerobic endurance. They have... They help you increase your VO2 max. They stimuli, stimu a lot of muscle stimulus, which um, causes increased adaptation. And so they are more intense efforts, but of shorter duration. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I missed a lot in there. No, I think it's great. But when I think of interval work or rep work, I think running done at a faster pace. And when I think faster, I mean, it falls under the race pace spectrum. That interval work can be done all the way up to probably marathon pace. Anything slower than that probably doesn't need intervals. But so I consider marathon pace and faster interval work. It's a bout with a set duration of time with a set duration of rest. That is an interval. Yeah, that's fair. And I think a good, a good way, like a way I use intervals, a way I prescribe intervals to my athletes. Let's say somebody is shooting to race their fastest 5k of their entire life and they want to set new PRs. 
Well, how are you going to do that if your body doesn't recognize that pace or even a little faster than that pace? Um, so it becomes efficient at that pace. It understands that pace, moves effectively. So intervals, for me, if I were to want to run a fast 5K, I would work a lot of intervals at 5K pace and intervals faster than 5K pace. One, because uh, your body will perceive the actual 5K effort then as a more relaxed and comfortable pace. Two, it does improve fitness. Three, all the running economy and efficiency that we talked about before. So on top of increasing VO2 max, everything. So you want to often work intervals in that are actually fast, as fast or faster than a goal race pace in something you have coming up, Exactly. in my opinion. Yeah, and it just allows you to do more work and recover better. You could get better at running 5Ks by running a 5K hard, but how many times could you repeat that in a week and sustain that for three or four weeks? Not very many, but you could work fat 5K pace in small bouts very often. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say an example of that, and and I don't like to throw my own numbers. I don't really care about that. But for example, I would like to show up in the Jacksonville Spartan race, which is in less than two weeks, in what I would consider five minute or under 5K race shape. So that's you know, be able to run five minute pace or under for a 5k. Important part of that um, is training my body to get comfortable at that pace. So I did quarter mile repeats at let's say between 435 and 440 pace. So that hopefully when Jacksonville comes around, my body will settle into a pace that I can sustain for a long time and feel good doing it. So overstimulation, uh, can also can produce really nice, like sustainable results, so mm -hmm. to speak. And then there's this term called rep work. And it generally gets thrown around when you start moving really fast in interval workouts. And so there's like this, this vague zone where does, does interval work suddenly become rep work? And I don't actually have a definition for that, Kirk. I just have my own working definition. And this is how I treat it. If you're taking half recovery or less, it's interval work. And if you're taking more than that, it's rep work. So what I mean by that is if you're doing a five-minute interval, if you're taking two and a half minutes recovery or less, that's an interval work. You're working longer than you're resting. If you start getting close to equal rest, and generally that only happens when you're running really, really fast, then those are that's rep work. So you could do both at the same time. You could do an interval workout and finish with some reps. Six by 1,000 at, let's say, 10K pace with 30-second recovery and finish up with four by 200 all out with equal walking recovery. Yeah, it's like a tomato tomato. Thing, and I don't, kinda. I don't use that term. Uh, Jack Daniels again uses that. Other people use rep work to talk about it. I think you're splitting hairs at this point. I don't even worry about it. But if I had to define it, that's what I'd say. To me, everything's interval work and everything's speed work. People say, "Oh, I just need more speed work." Again, to me, if it's race pace or faster, it's speed work. If you're talking sprint speed work, then that's a whole nother ball game. But yeah, speed work is fast and fast. Everyone knows what fast is. Yeah, I agree. I never use reps either as far as my terminology. Should we lump in, uh, you hear the term fartlek work around? Yeah. Uh, should we lump that into intervals? Do you want to talk about that right now? Yeah. What is a fartlek? So a fartlek is like a tempo, right? In that everyone uses it and everyone uses it differently. Yeah. Just like you can do a 10 mile tempo, even though tempo is supposed to mean 60 minute pace for your workout. Fartlek, everyone does a tons of different style, but it's Swedish for the word speed play. And it's supposed to be undefined. It's supposed to be running. It started out, you know, allegedly running through the fells in Sweden off-road. And whenever you had the desire to, to speed up, you just sped up. When we had the desire to stop speeding up, you stopped speeding up. And it was basically a fun, unstructured form of interval work. If you define the duration and the rest, it's interval work. If it's undefined and just spontaneous, it's a fart lick. The way I had used it in college and even, you know, a fart lick is, is one, you're not taking structured rest in the sense where you're not stopping and walking, you're not standing still, you're continually running at varying intensities and speeds. And you could, you could even write and say, I guess you were talking about uh, varying durations uh, of hard and, and easy efforts, but really... Back in college, we'd say, okay, we're going to go run three minutes hard and one minute easy. And we called it a fart lick because yeah. we were playing, but it was a very regimented program. So I, I just think the big thing with fart lick is, yeah, speed play and you are never stopping to walk or rest. It's 
continual motion. And that's how I use it. I was talking originally from the pure definition. You'll get running purists who will fight you to their death on this. If you script how long the interval length on your fartlek is, that is not a fartlek. That's an interval section. And I'm like, who cares? To me, <laughs> a fartlek, the way I use it, a fartlek is where your off period is still running. Yeah. Like in an interval, I will take standing still or walking recovery, or I'll take jog recovery. Jog meaning like slower than easy pace running. And if I'm running easy pace or faster, if I'm keeping an honest effort on the offs, now I'm now I'm doing a fartlek. Yeah. So again, it's people using it to meet their own definitions. But in today's day and age, people don't really just do unscripted workouts because you can't track that and you can't quantify the work you've done. And so a fartlek is a workout where you run fast and then not as fast, but you're not taking true recovery. Yeah, we used to do that with telephone poles in mm -hmm. high school. We just like go down the road and you run hard to one and then easy to the next and hard to, and there's no real, I mean, those telephone poles had no, there was even not even like rhyme or reason sometimes to the difference where I lived anyways, between poles. And that would be a good example. Street corner, to street, street corner to street corner, simple stuff. Very easy. The telephone pole is probably the most famous fartlek and most commonly done fartlek in the world. And yet you'll still in certain running forums, see some old timer be like, that's, that's an interval workout. Don't you dare call that a fartlek. I'm like, you're arguing over the a word with the word fart in it. Let's, let's just that's, all relax here. That's right. I saw somebody commented on your Instagram poll, fart space lick. That was Ryan Woods. Space. Oh, that was Ryan Woods. Classic Woodsy. Classy. I didn't know that was Ryan Woods. Yeah. Fartlek is F-A-R-T-L-E-K. That's right. So yeah, yeah, running fast, running not as fast, but not totally recovering. That's how I define it. All right. What else you got? I, I got cut down and progression run. People are a little confused on what's the difference between a cut down run? What's the difference between a cut down and a progression? Well, we could get, we could split hairs here. We could, but, but this I'm not is in that business. Yeah, that's, you are not, you lost that business a few years ago. That's right. I, yeah, I saw a photo of you. What was it I saw from you? I don't know if you posted like a flashback, something or another. You don't do that much, but you had hair. It was weird. You were a different. You were a different human. I and was. It was you, you had enough hair on your head. Like there was hair on your. There was hair on your head. Like oh, you yeah. weren't. You weren't struggling at that point. No, and I had thick curly hair. I could pick it out. Yeah, that was that was what was interesting. Yeah, thick curly hair. I I had the one the one positive of going uh, two two benefits of going bald for me one. I don't have like the best looking head, but it's not super lumpy or weird. And the second is that I would started buzzing my head so young that most people have never known me any other way. Really? So it wasn't like some drastic shock. Like I walked back in the room and people were like, what did you do? Do you know that for man, I think the first 12 years of my life, I had a mullet and I spiked it on top. My mom would put moose in it. So I spiked the top of it and I had the big party in the back. My mom still loves mullets. And then after, well, it's like two years after mullet stopped being cool, I got a rat tail. So I went to the rat tail. I mean, yeah, I'm sharing this. I had steps on the side and I got make, getting made fun of at school for the rat tail. So then I went to the bowl cut, which was a huge upgrade. So I just picked one bad haircut after another. You hit every basic white boy haircut. Yes, I did. That mullet lasted a long time though. I did the bowl cut and then I took it one step further when I was in middle school, the popular thing to do with your bowl cut was to shave the Green Bay Packers G into the side oh, yeah. of your head. Uh, I had that. Yeah. We're so cool. We are. Yeah. All right. Uh, cut down so progression. Cut down. <laughs> cut down progression. Somehow that got to mullets. So you, got, uh, you guys get it now, right? You guys yeah, totally get it. We can squash that and move on. Yeah. Um, so really, it's an increase in, in, in speed throughout the run or effort throughout the run. Uh, if we're going to keep it really simple. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Start slower or moderate and purposely increase uh, intensity or pace throughout. Ideally, you can keep a steady progression uh, the entire run and you're not, you know, you know, blowing your engine up too early where you can't sustain the purpose of the day. If you had to define the difference between the two, would you? Can you? Between the two what? between a cut down and a progression? Uh, you know what? Not, not, not really. I can think of different arguments, but mm -hmm. nothing that I think I could even convince myself yeah. of. I have like what I have in my head, but I've never seen someone be like, this is the absolute dividing line and you're an idiot if you don't follow this. I always think of it as a progression run is like I'm on the throttle and I'm just gradually increasing and there's no rhyme or reason to it other than feel. 
Whereas in a cut down, I prescribe my paces beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, yeah. And, and I think the best place to do a progression run or a cut down is the long run. Mm-hmm. I'd say that if you're going to use it effectively, you could do it with um, other things, but I really think the best place to do that would be to start out. So you can get a lot of time on your feet, start out easy and more relaxed and compound in home and you get a, a good array, array of work done in that session. Yep. My, my definition would be that I have do, I do progression 10 milers, but I'll do cut down 800s. Or I might do yeah. 10 by 800 and cut down by two seconds on every rep. But sure. I mean, really, you could use the same word for everything. Don't get too hung up on it, people. It just means getting faster or running harder throughout your workout. Yeah. Yeah. I know you have a list of stuff. My list, I've checked all the, the boxes that I need to check with my list, but I know you have a longer list. Yeah. People talked about strides or accelerations. People are saying you're doing strides before a workout, strides after a workout, throw some strides in. Do you guys do accelerations? What exactly does that mean? Or does it not mean one thing? Uh, it doesn't mean one thing, but it's, it, it, I would say that it strides are, you know, we, we talked about this a good bit, actually, you and I, in the fall, as we were starting to build our, our bases back up and, and it's a good way to kind of keep your running efficiency or run economy, have your body adjust to turnover and, and cadence even if you're not necessarily running fast workouts at the time, it's a good way to kind of stay sharp so you can jump into faster training and be ready for it. So adding those to the end of, let's say, an easy run, which could be a, a you know, 100 meters where you slowly uh, work into it and maybe the last 20 meters you're near an all-out sprint, but it's just a gradual build into near maximal pace and then you just back the throttle right back off. That's what I would consider a stride. Yeah, I agree. And I always... I. I like to put a time constraint on it. It's 10 to 20 seconds long. Yeah. If you're doing shorter than that, you might as well be doing like fly 40s, you know, like 40 meters accelerations really fast or hard or like burst start 40 meter dashes. Or if you're doing longer than that, you're doing intervals at that point. But just 10 to 20 seconds, start at a fast run and accelerate up to not quite top speed. Yeah. That's what you'll see guys doing a lot of times at, you know, if you're newer to running or Spartan racing or OCR or anything, you'll see a lot of guys doing that at the start line. Like before the race starts, they'll be sprinting around and <laughs> newbies will think they're showing off. Like, look at that guy showing off his speed and his stride. It's really just sort of getting his engine primed, getting his legs turning over, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a great way to warm the engine up before a race and get used to the effort you're about to do. And it's a great way either at the end of runs or um, the day before a quality day to get some extra little speed work in without doing anything damaging. Yep. And strides, accelerations, I lump them all together. I'm sure you'd find some purists that would say that strides are more relaxed and progressive and accelerations are a little bit more violent in their their progression that you start fast and you get super fast and you're sprinting and it's really short, but I don't worry about that. Yeah. What else, what else you got on your list? Well, on the old list... We're, we're cutting down through most of it or, or progressing through, whichever way you want to talk about it. Uh, the last two real or three, I guess, um, kind of go together. So we have peaking, periodization, and base. Sure. Well, let's periodization. So base and peaking could fall under the periodization umbrella. Yeah. So let's talk about periodization first. I like that. Periodization is really just like a trendy were way of saying like I am planning my training accordingly so I peak at the right time and perform at the races I want to perform well at. So periodization is a way to stage your training to be ready when it counts. Yep. Working on different points of emphasis throughout the training cycle to arrive at your best condition when it counts. Exactly what you said. Yeah. So and then you know, peaking and base work would fall in periodization at clearly at very opposite ends of your periodization, but they would fall under periodization. Base work is running primarily aerobically and just building up the amount of volume that you can handle, getting good at doing the work you're about to do later. That's the way I look at it. Laying the groundwork for what's going to happen next. If you want to use the age old analogy of building a house, this is the foundation. You build it strong, you build it thick, and it's going to stand up to anything that you put on top of it. Yeah, I like to think of base building, and I used this analogy in an episode or two ago, as the base of your your pyramid. I've, the the bigger the base of a pyramid is built, the higher the pyramid can go. 
because it's got a bigger and broader foundation. So base mileage um, could, I think, increase your your end potential when it comes to peaking. And during the base phase, you know, you're working on increasing volume and time on feet. It's a good time to start working on your tempo and threshold runs, that longer sustained effort type stuff. You're not doing a lot of stuff as fast or faster than race pace coming up. You're doing mostly, there's exceptions, but in my opinion, mostly threshold uh, threshold work and that type of stuff. I know you may differ on that a little. You do, you stay sharp during base work sometimes. Well, I believe in having all pieces present all the time, but I think that my percentages change significantly. Yeah. And so my, my fast stuff might just be extended or intense strides throughout my base period or some 200s after a tempo. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's a time to build the base of your pyramid. And for some people, it's 20 weeks long. And for some people, it's two weeks long. And some people keep building it throughout the year and some people don't. But it just means the preparation for the real work. Yeah. Yeah. So then the real, you know, so then you transition and the race is getting closer and you and you gradually move from your base phase to more purposeful work. And then at the end of, of that, as your race is approaching, that matters, you work and hopefully are peaking. And so peaking would be being ready to perform your best on the day of the race when it counts. So bracket, what does that peaking phase look like? The peaking phase, in my opinion, is matched by the, the length of the build. The longer and more intensely you build up for a race, the longer and more intensely you back off before the race. But even that's not a hard and fast rule because you see some great marathoners who don't even start peaking until 10 days out because they figure I've built all this. I'm going to stay at my best possible fitness as long as possible. You see some track guys that peak for four weeks and some people that peak for, you know, 10 to 12 days. So to me, what it looks like, no matter how long the peak is, it's a reduction in volume, meaning the overall amount of work you're doing, but you maintain the same frequency of work. So if you normally work out seven days a week, you still work out seven days a week. Each session is the same pace you would normally do, but there's less of it. Okay. Would you sort of uh, lump this in with tapering or do you think they're different? I think that they're, they're cousins. Tapering is just reducing volume and recovering and making sure you're fresh. Peaking to me implies some sharpening. There are some key workouts that you do in there to incite the final bits of change that you need as an athlete to arrive to the race day as as fit as you possibly can, whereas tapering is arriving more rested. So a peak might have a really hard effort 10 days out, where yeah. a taper could be as simple as three to five days of just reduced volume to liven the legs up a little bit. And when I think of peaking in particular, that's a period of time. And for me, in my mind, you know, and you, we've talked about this, you can really only hold a peak, a true peak for maybe a few weeks at a time before your actual potential can dip for a little while. And, and the peaking phase would be mostly a lot of work at or under your goal race pace, whatever that race may be, you are starting to run harder. You are starting to run faster even than, than race, uh, you know, goal effort. And you try to hold back on that earlier in the season because it could cause you to peak and get sharp too early. So I think of peaking as we're starting to shorten the reps and effort some or shorten the reps, increase the pace and intensity. Yeah. Yeah. It takes me right back to college. When it's time for nationals, it starts coming around. Your paces stay the same or get faster. You do a few less of them and you get longer rest in between because you want to absorb every single ounce of every workout. And some of the more ancillary pieces, the outside pieces of your training, some of the long runs, some of the threshold work kind of got cut out and you did a higher percentage of the true race pace or faster so that you got good at doing exactly what you were going to need to do. Yeah. Yep. And if everybody's different, but for me personally, I start hitting those peaking workouts three weeks out from a race that really matters. And that's like really fast, really intense, a little more rest, like you said. And usually those those faster, sharper workouts take hold and then end up paying off for that race. That would be three weeks down the line. So about three weeks out is when I will sharpen or attempt to peak. I know some people are longer, some people are shorter. I think that's like a general center point as far as that goes. What do you use? 
Well, to be honest, since getting into, since leaving college, I haven't done as much peaking. I've done more yeah. tapering because yeah. the racing we're currently doing is the championship races are over an hour. And so I do less sharpening work and more recovering work, but I still like to hit time trials two weeks out, 10 days out. I like to hit something that's harder than my race day so that race day will not sting like something else has stung recently. Yeah, I like that too. Hey, if you felt the pain in a workout, uh, then it doesn't catch you off guard on race day now, does it? That's right. Oh, another thing. Sorry, I got. I do have one more on my list. Uh, we talk about compromised running. Yeah. Yeah, we talk about you know broken running, compromised running. We should probably dive into that real quick because that's a way I train and that's a way you train. And I guess it could be very confusing if somebody just heard yeah. the word compromised running. Like, what the heck would that mean? You know, and I would say that's compromised running. And you're going to hear us talk about it more, I think, in future episodes. So compromised running is when you're, I'm going to keep it simple and say that your rhythm is broken. So it would be, for example, you could run a 400 meter repeat and then do some burpees and then have to continue on and run another 400 meter repeat followed by another movement like jump squats or tuck jumps or push-ups or anything. And the point is to change energy systems and get your body's ability to adapt to broken rhythm, which happens in obstacle course racing all the time. You hit an obstacle, you run fast. You do heavy carry, you run fast. So compromise running would be training, which helps you prepare for that. Yeah. Yeah. You nailed it. And, and I'd just like to add that it has a, a, a fatigued piece into it where you could do normal broken running, which was, you might do for a track runner trying to, um, trying to navigate to the trails where they have to get good at actually breaking their cadence and their stride just through tight turns or technical terrain. Or you could do more of the compromised broken running where you add fatigue into the equation with the thrusters or the burpees. And either way, you're breaking your rhythm, you're breaking your cadence and getting back to it. Yep. The ability to run fast when you're tired. Yep. And when you're tired from things other than running, like yeah. a heavy carry or something else. Uh, yeah, I'm glad we wedged that one in there. Anything else? Well, just that it, it doesn't have to be obstacle racers or trail racers. It can be marathoners. If you're a flat marathoner and you're getting ready for, let's say, the Atlanta Marathon Trials, it has more hills. Broken running can for you can look like having hills or lunges thrown in so that you can crest a hill and get back to work without having to have this huge ramp up of your heart rate or this huge shunting of blood to your quads. That's a good point. And I actually noticed a pretty good when I started compromise running, um, I noticed it just translate to my steady running. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, you know, just going out and running a hard tempo run felt easier because the week before I was having to do freaking burpees every two minutes in my run. And that really is just like, it's a good perspective thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Bulletproofs every little bit of the engine rather than just working on horsepower. Yeah. Uh, we talked about cadence right there. So we get, I get a lot of questions on cadence. I'm not a, like, like you have people like Rich Diaz who are cadence disciples. And then you have people like me on the other end that think it's important, but I don't put too much stock in it. I treat it like heart rate. Everyone's is different, but give me your ideas in about cadence. Cadence is basically how quickly your stride is turning over, how often your feet, your feet are hitting the ground. Typically it's measured by the minute. So for example, Rich Diaz thinks everybody should be at 180 strides per minute or above, no matter what the circumstance. So that would be like, even if you're going for a really slow recovery run, you're doing these tiny little shuffle steps to ensure that your feet are hitting the ground 180 times per minute, which is quick in my opinion. Um, but cadence just refers to how quickly your feet are turning over. Yep. So that, that covers all of the serious questions. There's a few more people have sent that Maybe we can touch upon real quick. I'm going to scroll through this, Kirk. We yep. have certain things like uh, junk miles. There, Ooh, junk miles. There's, there's two camps. There are people who say, if you're not running X percent of max heart rate or X percent of marathon pace, it's doing nothing for you. And there are the people that say, all running is skill practice. The more you can do, the better. Yeah. I mean, two of our past guests, Carrie Tolson and Hobie Call, are non-junk mile runners. They Currently. Think when you're Currently, currently, it's correct. They all had points in their lives in which they were running junk miles. Um, I think it's skill work. I think it's. I think the more you ride a bike, the better you get at it. The more you spend time on feet, in my opinion, the the better and more comfortable you get running. So I would 
lump junk miles into recovery miles. I think they're the same thing. They just sound worse. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's such a thing as a wasted rep if you're doing it with your proper form and intent. And you know what I'll tell you, let's say I have a hard effort on Wednesday and I have another hard effort planned Friday. Okay. Which would be really close together, but whatever. If I didn't run on Thursday, I will feel worse on Friday for my next hard effort than if I did run some junk miles on Thursday. And I don't know, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of reasons physiologically why that is, um, but it could just be, you know, run efficiency and muscle memory to who knows what. So I think junk miles are, um, I think a good part of every program, but I yeah. think the junk miles should just be thrown out the window. You should call them like recovery miles. Mile yeah, it's aerobic development. I mean, if yeah. you were another sport, uh, is it is it junk throws if a quarterback isn't wearing his helmet or isn't dropping back at game speed? Are they junk free throws if an NBA player isn't shooting with uh, the same free throw cadence of referee hand you the ball, shoot, step off the line, step back? If you just stand there and shoot free throws, are those junk free throws or is there muscle memory there that carries over? You're making good points right now, Bracken. I'm a point maker, Kirk. I'm a point you sure maker. are. Uh, pre-race poop. That's self-explanatory. Uh, no so, one's ever yeah. taken a pre-race poop. You take pre-race poops, plural. Plural, plural. Yep. Douche grade. Kirk, you ever heard of douche grade? Douche, douche grade? Douche grade. Uh, no. All right. It is what a is it? colloquial term in the trail running community for taking the easy way out on a run when your legs are a little beat up. Instead of running steep grade, you just find like 5 or 10% easy trail to run. It's the uh, douche grade. Sandbagging it. Term. But. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's I don't even have that option here because I can go for a 10 mile run and get four feet of elevation gain. So there's no douche grade here. Mud butt. Come on, stay out of here, guys. Genital Mud. chafing. I, we can address genital chafing. We can. <laughs> oh, yeah, we can. I guess you're the uh, you're Mr. Clean over there. So tell, <laughs> you me, don't tell have to me more. <laughs> we don't have to define genital chafing. That's as self explanatory as it gets. But what it comes down to is if you're chafing, you're wearing the wrong thing. And that's all it is to it. Like if you're chafing, you either aren't wearing enough um, lubricant of some sort or your clothes are incorrect or it's a combination of the both. If you're running in compression shorts as a guy and you're chafing, then you got to throw on some briefs underneath. If you're running in running shorts as a guy and you're chafing, then you got to change running shorts or throw on some like Vaseline or body glide or something. Or just wait until like 1, 2 a.m. and just don't wear anything. Yeah. Just get out there and run free. That's right. Just free ball it. They actually do make some. They make some good uh, running underwear. I, I wear some by a company called Runderwear. Uh, very punny, but the stuff is very nice. It works. So you can get some if you have issues with that. Just go online. It's, you can buy it. Yep. Shouldn't be chafing. If you are, you got to change your gear up. Did you guys ever do like a uh, like a beer mile or a nude mile in college? You know some of those like. Some of the WEAC schools, Bracken and I both went to college in Wisconsin at state division three schools. And it seemed like every school decided to like, basically at one point in the year, get drunk, get naked, and then race a mile. It was like something, did you guys ever do that? There were a few late night runs where clothes were removed. Yeah. You didn't chafe then though, did you? No. If you don't want to chafe as a guy, hop in the ice bath, throw on your shorts, go run. Problem solved. <laughs> Fair. Boom. We never did that. We never did the naked mile, but in Stevens point, Wisconsin, every year they still, I believe do the naked mile and the street gets lined with people naked, naked. Yes. The the guys and girls, at least when I was going to school, take their clothes off. I mean, they're pretty liquored up. It's at the end of the season and hundreds of people line the street. And I just, you know, that can't be flattering for any guy or woman, I suppose, but no, that's your that's your real solution to the chafing. Whoever asked that question of all the things that you would look good doing naked running is is way down on that list. Low with like bear crawling. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Last last question uh, from Vivian Siva over in Budapest. This is this is my brother's fiance. <laughs> OK, all right. I use the term snap when I'm talking about my legs or if I'm talking about shoes. And it's recently, I've used it my whole life, but it started to become like common terms in shoe reviews. Oh, the shoe's not snappy. It's, it's lacking a little snap or pop. So she says, is it true snap is not a real thing? Yes, it's true. It is not. Anyone who's ever had some snap in their legs knows exactly what snap is. When you, when you want someday you run out the door and your legs, you just got some snap and some pop in your legs that day. Then message me and tell me it's not a real thing. 
You got a little juice. You're feeling light on your feet that day. Yep. little pop. Vivian, you get your sarcasm out of here. I don't think that's an official term. It shouldn't be, but yeah. it exists. Well, that wraps it up for me. I'm sure there are more terms out there that still need to be defined. So right into the show, either leave it in comments or hit us up on social media. But this should be the new like terminology one-on-one for this show. So if at any point you need a refresher, tune back in, listen to this stuff, and write your ship. Right on. That went long. How did that go long? I have no clue. The Running Public is brought to you exclusively by VJ Shoes. These shoes are off-road, trail training and racing, bulletproof, and they have the best grip on the planet. Best grip on the planet, hands down. Feet down. Feet down. Get yourself some. <laughs>